Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by Davinia Tomlinson, author of Cash is Queen and Money Expert. We are going to be talking about all things investing, saving, satisfaction. There is so much for us to discuss. It is so important for us as women to educate ourselves, to empower ourselves and to get over any feelings of awkwardness or any stigma we might have about talking about money. So we are going to dive straight in and get into all of it. Welcome to the podcast, Davinia. Hi, Adrienne. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as I said, so much to discuss and I want to dive into all of it. And I think, you know, we discussed before before our recording today that often when I've listened to podcasts about money, especially if they're focused on women, then often they'll kind of touch on some of the basics, you know, the kind of 101, where to start if you're an absolute beginner. But then often there isn't much further than that. And so today I want to kind of make some generous assumptions about the listeners of this show and assume that maybe they've done a little bit of homework maybe they've got to grips with some of the basics so we're going to dive a little bit deeper is that okay yeah absolutely so I think a great place to start would be for the listeners to maybe just hear a little bit about you Davinia and your experience your journey so far and what has led you to the mission that you're on now and the book that you've written cash is queen yeah thank you so I mean, my uh, career within the investment management industry started almost two decades ago now, which is wild to think. So I'm a Brummie by birth um, and I moved down to London for uh, my very first job after university, which was for one of the world's largest global asset management companies. And that really was where, you know, I set my, you know, very early on my grounding in this industry and where I developed a real love and passion for investment management, which is a really strange thing to say, you know, it's not necessarily the kind of career path that you can, you know, people would typically say that they're passionate about, right? Like music, sports, anything that is, you know, something that I think you can, you can get everybody involved with and, and get the general population excited by, you would tend to hear more more commonly associated with the word passion. But for me, the one thing that I was always quite clear about was the transformational ability of good finance, financial foundations in helping people to live the quality of life that they wanted to live. And so, you know, you know, fast forward, you know, several years later, having had, an, uh, you know, jobs and experiences with other companies, the one thing that had, be, had started to become abundantly clear to me was that there were a number of gaps you know, uh, in terms of representation. So whether it be for women in leadership roles within the industry, um, certain types of ethnicity, people from certain incomes and backgrounds, and that there was a real uh, challenge there in terms of engaging those sorts of people around their finances. And so that led me on this kind of path of curiosity in which I wanted to understand why aren't we seeing some of the incredible women that I've been privileged to know over the course of my career, why are we not seeing them in C-suite positions, for example, CEO, COO, CFO, for example? Um, why aren't we seeing some of the amazing 
you know, friends that I have in my personal network, why, you know, is there such, uh, if not stigma associated with women talking about money, but certainly the people that I knew who were all incredibly talented, well-educated, professional, ambitious women, they just weren't talking about investing their money or doing anything to build wealth. And I think even the word wealth is quite a taboo word and subject for lots of women. Mm. And I think we've been unfairly labeled as, you know, being gold diggers in in some respects or, you know, ice maidens in others. And it's just become really an off-putting topic. And, you know, without wanting to boil it down and, and make it too simplistic, I think by virtue of the fact that you don't have women in senior leadership positions, responsible for making decisions or you know contributing to debates about policy or product development that ultimately can improve the you know that can mean that we are developing propositions and services that suit our needs as women as unique and distinct from men and you know I think at this juncture it's probably a good opportunity for me to you know just throw in some stats you know when you look at the financial chasms that have opened up between men and women when it comes to money from the gender pay gap to the gender pensions gap, the gender investing gap, all of these gaps, you know, the average UK woman at 65 uh, will retire with a pension pot, one fifth of the size of the average UK man's pension pot. And in real terms, what that looks like is, you know, a £35,000 pension pot, which when you consider that the average baby girl born today has a really high probability of living to 100 and you're 65 and you've got 35,000 pounds, you've got 35 years of life potentially to live on 35,000 pounds. You Clearly, you can see that that's a problem. So we're effectively sleepwalking into a situation of potential pension of poverty. And, you know, without there being enough focus, emphasis, the right kinds of communication and education for women around the significance of taking control of their financial futures as early as they possibly can, then you can see, you know, how some of these issues may arise. So, you know, from my perspective, I think with all of the experience and education that I'd had and training within the industry, I felt very motivated and committed to doing something specifically to help promote that sense of financial inclusion for women. Um, And I think, you know, coming from the background that I come from has certainly led to that as well. You know, it's not necessarily something that I would have been conscious of at the time, but I come from a very matriarchal background. I'm Caribbean. Um, There are many, you know, very inspiring, quite powerful women within my family who would have all held the purse strings. And so I think, you know, when you think about the career path that I've chosen and the business that I have built with Raincheck, which is, as I say, about helping women take control of their financial futures, I think the impetus for that was probably grounded in my early childhood. Mm, gosh, there's so much in there. And some, you know, the stats are pretty shocking and actually a little bit overwhelming because, you know, we're going to come on to talk more about the book. And I think, generationally there are I think differences and so some would argue that for example myself I'm 35 years old and a lot of my friends would say well you didn't learn it in school if they didn't grow up talking about it for whatever reason as you've just listed some of them stigma attached to talking about wealth or money or maybe a shame or embarrassment about feeling that they, they don't know much about money and investing and saving and all these things then essentially I think there's a lot of people are kind of in that middle ground. So maybe they're no, they're not even close to retiring yet. So they've still got years and mm. years ahead of them to work, but they're also not 
21 or 25 and so if they're reading uh, information about money that says start early start soon start young then they're starting to panic and feeling overwhelmed thinking well what about me you know maybe if you're 37 or 35 and you're thinking actually is it too late to start so maybe we can dive into that one and then maybe discuss a little bit about the difference between investing and saving and yeah speaking to that person who's maybe mid-30s how can that can they catch up if they're just starting this year yeah no I love that question and I think you know when I think about the composition of the rainmaker community where you've got women from all walks of life different ages backgrounds and geographies even it's a question that comes up quite commonly so the average age I would say of the women that I'm uh, privileged to get to work to I mean it spans from anywhere I don't know from you know kind of mid-20s through to you know 50s and you know I've even had some women in their 60s which is brilliant because it just shows that this is something that we can all uh you know almost congregate around and have really open conversations with like-minded women around irrespective of our differences the one thing that I would say is that it's it really is never too late I mean if you think about you know we've talked about life expectancy and our mortality because you know the the, the positives are that you know women I don't want to say it's positive that women live longer than men but women are living longer you know all of us as a, you know as a result of better health decisions better nutrition you know we're much more aware of our mortality and we're taking steps to preserve that as much as we possibly can which means that we do live longer and so on that basis you know we, we can see even when you look at the state retirement age in the UK and pension payments you know that that is increasingly getting older and older and the reason for that is as I say we are living longer so really the idea that you know if you're in your, your mid-30s or 40s or even early 50s if you haven't yet got off the starting blocks we shouldn't in any way feel like oh my gosh it's too late because as a result of that it, your natural behavior would be okay well I'm not going to do anything about it at all the thing that I always stress with the rainmakers is that every day that you delay of course is a missed opportunity mm -hmm. and so even if you're not starting as somebody that's 21 or 22 straight out of university it doesn't mean that you don't have an opportunity to do something today to improve your quality of life for tomorrow so that's really important and I think you know if, even if you think about you know that the the mechanics of investing and, and you know the real engine power around why investing uh is in many respects, when you're thinking about your long-term wealth generation, so we're not talking about get rich quick schemes or those overnight riches or successes that you can see touted about on social media, um, dubiously, I might add. Mm -hmm. um, we are talking about, you know, building wealth over the long-term and the real rocket fuel behind investing is the effect of compounding. And, you know, for people that are familiar with this subject or may have, you know, read up on it, you you will see compounding talked about as one of the eighth wonders of the world. I think it was yeah. Einstein that talked about it like that. And the reason for that is over the long term, what you see is that investing has an incredible power and potential in terms of outperforming cash savings. So what it does, you know, compounding refers to these, this kind of accumulator effect, which means that your uh, rate of return accelerates at a much higher rate than if you just stuck all of your money in a fixed deposit account that might be paying you currently 1% or 2%. Um, so it's really important that we think about, okay, well, you know, I haven't done anything about it and I feel a bit panicked, but if I start doing something today in 10 years time, I've still got 10 years time, I may have 20 years, you know, what, however long I've got, by putting my money, by thinking strategically about how I'm managing this money and how I am allocating it to different types of investment, different types of asset class, 
And, you know, if you're thinking about asset classes, effectively, we're talking about different categories of investments. So I think for lots of people, when you think of investing, you think, oh, my God, stock market. And you're thinking all of this huge peaks and troughs that are sensationalized in the press. Mm. But of course, in the same way, you know, the press will be talking about, you know, billions wiped off the S&P 500 overnight. FTSE 100 falls to its lowest level in a decade. You know, all of these things are designed to create these moral panics and have people really, uh, you know, panic and worry about their finances. We're in the midst of a cost of living crisis right now, so it's completely understandable. But of course, the same papers are not going to sensationalise FTSE 100 restored to its highest level since 2011, or S&P 500 records its best quarter since since pre-pandemic for example. And so we have to be quite discerning, not just about the types of media that we consume, but also about the types of financial planning decisions that we're making and being very, very disciplined, very focused. And, you know, and it's, it, and it's easy for me to say, but try and find a way to tune out some of that noise and focus specifically on what you're able to do with the time you have available. So the mantra that I always give the Rainmakers is control exactly what you're able to control and ignore everything else. Mm, yes, great advice. And so let's use a real life example. So again, practical things people can think about and consider and the questions that come up between the difference between investing and saving. And you've given us some examples there with, with compounding. So mm. as an example, if someone said, okay, from now on, from this day forward, I am going to save £500 a month. They've got mm-hmm. £500 a month to do something with. If they put it in a savings account, as you said, they might get 1% or 2%. If they put it into investments, where should they typically start? How could they learn about where to invest? Because some of the conversations I have when I speak to people and say, well, even if you can save or invest £400 a month, £500 a month, start with that. One thing that I've heard recently from a friend, she said to me, well, what if I need that money? She said, so what if I invest some money now? And then in a year or two, I need that money. Can I get it back? And I was trying to explain mm. to her, like, you know, you can, but this is the risk. But then I was also, I think there's a there's maybe a, uh, an assumption from some people that once you invest, that means 10 years, 20 years, you're locking right. away your money for, for the future, uh, which of course isn't necessarily always the case. So yeah, could you maybe outline for us some of the main differences between investing and saving and then if I'm going to take my savings and start to invest, where should I start? Yeah. So I think, you know, just to start with then, if you think about investing as being, um, and of course, one of the main differences potentially is in time horizon. So as you've correctly outlined, if you're thinking about investing, I always encourage people to take a long term view. And of course, you know, what does that what does that look like? Well, it doesn't have to mean for all eternity. But I think, you know, if you're thinking about investing over a minimum investment horizon of somewhere between three and five years. So knowing that, you know, you're giving your money the best possible opportunity to um, withstand any peaks and troughs in the stock market, but also um, to accrue those returns and so that you can see the, the tangible benefit of it. It's important that you you give yourself that time. You give the money that it's almost kind of marination time. You give it that hmm. that, that opportunity to do something Um, whereas savings if you think about putting your money into a cash savings account the reason lots of people and you know there is a lot of evidence that women disproportionately will save their money in cash there is a real comfort from knowing that effectively that cash is liquid you can get at you can go and withdraw that money in cash physically from you know an atm or withdraw it from your your cash savings account now of course with that there is still the caveat that with certain types types of cash savings accounts so for example a fixed deposit account there may be certain termination penalties if you were to withdraw it before the end of the fixed period which might be 12 months it might be 24 months and the reason it might be a fixed, you know, you might opt for a fixed uh, 
fixed deposit account versus, you know, a more flexible, you know, sometimes there's a flexi save or easy save. There are different names for them where there are no penalties associated with you withdrawing your cash whenever you want to. There are certain, you know, perhaps you might get a better interest rate if you go for a fixed deposit account. But still, if you need to take that money out, you can take it out in cash whenever you want. Hmm. The thing about investing, of course, and, you know, if you're thinking about a stock market investment, then what is required for you to get that cash out is for you to sell those positions. So let's say you've got, uh, you're invested in a FTSE 100 fund, well, you would need to liquidate that investment. And that might mean that it might take uh, three working days, five working days. It depends on the type of investment you have and your investment provider or manager would help you to do that. So it doesn't mean that you have as, uh, you know, you don't have that immediacy of access, but you certainly can still liquidate that position. And of course, you know, it, it differs for different types of asset class. Um, and so it's important to be aware of that. So the thing that I would always stress to anybody before they think about investing is, is this money that you, A, can afford to have locked away and you're not going to miss it. It's not going to compromise your quality of life. Um, and also that you have an understanding of the risks associated. You have an understanding of what the past performance looks like. You're clear on what, you know, if something goes wrong, do you have recourse to the financial ombudsman scheme, for example? You know, what kinds of protections are there for your money if the investment provider should go bust? So it's just having a, a, a good understanding in general of the different options, the different risks available. So you're not going into, into it completely blind. But I think you've highlighted a really important misconception that lots of people can have, which is that, you know, oh my gosh, I don't want to invest because I don't want it locked away. You know, long term in lots of people's minds might feel like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And exactly as you've described, you know, there are ICES available, which come in both cash form as well as stocks and shares. And an ISA effectively is a wrapper. It's a tax wrapper that kind of sits around the investment. So it's almost like a basket. If you think you put your cash into this basket or you put your stocks and shares into this basket and it ring fences whatever's in the basket from tax. So, you know, in the current tax year, you have, you know, ISA protection of up to £20,000, which means that anything you put into your ISA is tax free up to that, li that limit, which is brilliant. And so I always encourage people to take advantage of those uh, tax incentives that are legitimately offered by the government to encourage us to save. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean if your money is in an ISA that you can't take it out. Yeah, of course, you can take it out. Of course, your cash ISA is likely is going to be more flexible and more liquid, as I say, than your stocks and shares ISA. But you can certainly withdraw that money if you should need to. Mm -hmm. And so really thinking about it in that way, rather than, you know, feeling like, oh, my God, it's, it's going to be locked away indefinitely. The best way to think of it is that, you know, if you were saving money into a pension, you know, obviously you can't take your money out before you're approaching retirement age and, you know, under pension freedoms, you can start withdrawing that money from the age of 55. But with your ISA, you can take that money out at any point. So you still have an opportunity to invest without worrying about any penalties that might be associated with withdrawal if you had an immediate need to liquidate the investment. Yeah. And that's great to hear from the investment side when it comes to money. And again, I want to be, you know, I want to be detailed. I want to be granular because I think it's important. And mm. often people feel embarrassed to kind of admit if they don't know um, a lot about these kind of things like ISIS. So I really wanted to, to go that, you know, give that information. So thank you. But yeah. also when we think about investments, are there other kinds of investments as well as cash? So for example, if we have a mortgage or um, gold or artwork, is, are there other ways which people can essentially yeah ring fence or save money for the future 
Yeah, and that's a, I'm so glad you asked this question because I'm very interested in alternative investments right now. And what we've seen, particularly in a hyperinflationary environment like we're in right now, so we've seen inflation at record levels. And again, this is one of the reasons why it's really important. Now is a, a crucial time for those of us that do have disposable income that we uh, can save or invest to think about how we can make that money work as hard for us as we've had to work to generate it in the first place. Um, and one of the big reasons for that is inflation, as we've seen, you know, the value of our shopping baskets in terms of what you're able to get for 20 quid or 30 quid today versus what you were able to get, you know, five or 10 years ago is significantly diminished. Um, and, you know, in inflation effectively in, in its simplest level just refers to your purchasing power. You know, how far is our pound stretching? And what we're seeing is that it's not stretching anywhere near as far as it used to in the recent past. So when we think about investing, one of the, the things that we have to consider is the extent to which the investments that we choose enable us to hedge against inflation, provide a buffer against inflation. And, you know, traditionally, there have been certain types of investment like gold that have been a really good store of value, which have meant that, in, again, in simple terms, that they can withstand the impact of inflation and that the value of the gold will be preserved over time. So that if you held gold bars, for example, there are platforms that, you know, are creating opportunities for people to, you know, invest in gold quite simply without holding bullion. Um, and therefore, you will know that, OK, over time, the value of this gold will not be eroded by inflation. And that's okay, really I'm going to jump in here. Silly question, yes. confession. So when people talk about investing in gold, are yes. you literally buying, you know, for example, through an app where you can see this is the value that you have stored? Or are you actually buying gold? Because I've heard people mm. before say, okay, I'm going to buy gold. And then what do I do? Just like keep it in the house? Like, do I, you know, <laughs> buy some gold jewelry? Is that the yes. same? You know, do I buy a gold ring and, and hope that in the future I can sell it at another shop? But is it actually mm. investing and you don't, you don't actually physically hold the gold, right? Yeah, you know, and again, brilliant question. And there are different ways of doing this. So, you know, some of us come from families in which, you know, maybe for, uh, you know, certain milestones that we go through, weddings or celebrations, birth of a baby or whatever, you might be gifted, you know, you might inherit gold when somebody passes away. But also, as I say, for different milestones, you might be gifted gold and you will go to a specialist jeweler and they will weigh the gold for you. They will give you a certificate that sets out the value of the gold and, uh, you know, the quality of the gold, all of these sorts of things. And it's important that you keep that because it should, it means that if you ever wanted to trade that gold, sell it, then you've got all of the credentials, all of that certification that, that is quite clear around what the value of the gold is, the weight of the gold and all of these sorts of things. So that's really important. You can also buy gold bars and some people, you know, if you've got safety deposit boxes, you know, there are certain banks that you can that you can pay to hold that on your behalf. It and feels then it's very say, much like a film. It yeah. like very James Bond <laughs> to be like, oh, I've got some gold bars I'm in just, my uh, bank account. <laughs> or I've got them in my cellar. Um, yeah. But you can also, of course, you know, with the advent of fintech and, you know, all of these various financial innovations, you can also invest via uh, funds. So, you know, there is, you know, some of the big investment managers, there are commodities funds. So you effectively have a stake in um different types of gold assets but instead of you having to say right I, I physically bought two or three gold bars or however much your money can stretch you've invested in the fund that all that holds these commodities it might be gold it might be platinum silver as well um, and so you get a mix of different types of commodities in there and precious metals so there are different options that are available so I'm glad you raised this because I don't want people to think oh my god well I'm, I'm not in a position to own gold bars so mm -hmm. that's not for me but actually there are other options and also do reflect on the fact that if you've inherited jewellery 
And if even even if you don't have all of the certifications that will set out, you know, the value of that gold and, you know, all of its credentials, do consider and you, you just want to, you know, you're curious and you want to get a valuation, do consider taking it to a specialist valuer. Um, mm. You know, in, in Birmingham, for example, you might go to the Jewelry Quarter. In London, you might go to Hatton Gardens. You know, there are other types of specialist valuers that you can find online. Mm. And just go and start to to explore and see whether any of the jewellery, for example, that you currently hold has a value and what you can do to preserve that for future generations too. Great. Oh my gosh, this is fascinating. Okay, so another topic that I want to talk about, and I, I don't even like the word, Davinia, I'll be honest, I feel like even this word <laughs> just turns me off and probably a lot of other people, budget. I hate that I word. I know. And I think the reason I hate that word <laughs> is because it makes me think of... Uh, I guess it just makes me think of maybe growing up with, uh, you know, a mother who had a very low income and, you know, mm-hmm. low income household with four kids and everything she always used to say, you know, like that she had to budget and manage every pound, every penny. And so as a result, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word budget, they either think, oh, boring, I've got to do a spreadsheet or they think, great, I've got to give up everything that I like. I can't, I can't buy a coffee anymore. I've got to stop using Uber. I've got to basically budget every pound and save for a rain and it just kind of turns people off so mm. I guess the way I'd like to approach it is to maybe think something I read in your book which I loved is it's not how much you make but how much you keep that counts and I've heard other mm. people talking about this idea of just take a percentage of what you earn and think about okay that so then obviously if your income goes up that percentage will you know it's it's related to that so maybe yes. we could start to yeah talk about that so when you consider is there a percentage number that you kind of recommend to people to say, take this percentage of what you earn and start to think about saving and investing that when you start with a budget? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there are different rules of thumb and one of the frameworks that I, that I use and which, you know, I I share with people who are just, you know, starting from a, you know, completely blank page when it comes to budgeting. And you're quite right. It's got a bit of an image problem. It's a bit like pensions. And as soon as people hear either of these words, they think, oh my God, like, you know, pensions, you're thinking, well, that's associated with, associated with being a granny. I'm nowhere near that. So I'm not even going to think about that today. Um, and then budgeting, as you've described, people immediately think about privation, like, okay, well, mm. that's going to mean that I can't do some of the things that I want to do. When in reality, your budgeting should be viewed as a tool of liberation. This is how mm-hmm. I think of it. Because effectively what you're doing is saying, because I will be in control of my money and know what's happening with my money, you know, it's not my money being in control of me, I'm in control of my money, you know, and this is the thing about cash is queen, it's that you are reigning supreme over your own life and your money is an important part of that. And I want the young ladies to know that as early as they possibly can, but we can adopt this principle at any age. We are in charge, we are in control. Your budget enables you to just have a clear understanding of what's happening. So, you know, in the same way, sometimes we might say, oh my God, like I've got all these standing orders and direct debits just flying out of my account, have no idea what these subscriptions are. I didn't know I still had that subscription. And this is the kind of thing that can lead people into real panic. You know, when I started RainCheck, one of the things that was important to me is that we think of financial well-being in the same way as we think of any other aspect of our well-being. All of us can attest to at some point in our lives having had money worries or growing up in a family in which there were money worries. And we know the relationship between you know, poor financial health, you know, a debt situation, for example, and our mental health. If you're going to bed every Mm. night thinking, oh my God, like I can't pay the bill or, you know, I'm nervous about when the gas bill comes, the electric bill comes, or, you know, I hope something doesn't break because I just can't afford it. We already know the impact of that on our physiological well-being. 
right? So mm. this is just about saying me having a good grasp of my financial well-being is just me taking care of myself. You know, your yeah, financial self-care is self-care. It's not something that you treat separately and your budget is a big part of that. So one of the frameworks that I use, um, that I talk about, which is not mine, um, it's not proprietary, but it's 50, 30, 20. And basically what it's saying is, you know, 50% of your income might be associated with your needs. So every, you know, your household expenses, you know, your rent or mortgage, your food, your childcare, etc. 30% for your wants. So, you know, the things that you enjoy doing, whether it's your gym membership, holidays, whatever. And then 20% for savings and investments. The thing that I always caveat against, and I talk about this in the book, is that do not be wedded to those, uh, you know, allocations. So if you're, if you live in London, or if you live in New York or Tokyo, or a really expensive city, you may find that actually, based on your income, your needs are way more than 50%. And that's okay. So this is not about your budget shouldn't be a stick that you use to beat yourself with. As I say, your budget is a tool of liberation. So you have to say, right, with me being in control of my money and seeing right, my income is this, my needs are actually accounting for 80%. That's okay. Because what that means is me now understanding that my needs are accounting for 80%. Wow, I did not know that before. So what that means is I need to look at how I can maximize my income in other ways or drive down my costs mm. similarly you might say okay well now i've got 20 percent left so i clearly can't have 30 percent for my want for my my wants but it's still important that i preserve life's pleasures we don't exist on this earth just to work and die clearly mm. we have to make space for some of the things that we really enjoy doing and even if that means it's only five percent of our income is assigned to that we preserve that five percent and we really squeeze all of the juice out of that five percent and enjoy spending that money we're not going to be doing it in guilt or in shame we're doing it and we're enjoying that five percent and then we say right 15 percent that's left i'm going to save and invest that and i think thinking about it in percentage terms does give you that flex exactly as you describe adrienne it's about saying what can i afford to save and invest and i'm not i'm not beating myself up over it when my income increases i'm going to increase the percentage simple as that i don't need to worry today about what is going to happen tomorrow but I know that strategically these are some of the decisions that I'm going to make that will mean that you know I'm increasing my income over time or I'm reducing my expenses over time or I'm managing my debt situation differently and these things will mean that my financial well-being overall will be far greater and I will go to bed each night with peace that is really the goal yes amen and I you know you are so right I echo that completely around well-being and financial well-being being a part of our physiological our mental and our emotional state because of course mm. if you are worried or concerned that as you said something goes wrong you can't afford to fix it or even just not being able to have that five percent to do the things that you enjoy to treat yourself to something that you love yeah. exactly right you cannot just work and work and work and work pay some tax bills and then that's it uh, and I think something I wanted to ask you about as well you just mentioned very briefly you're going to enjoy that spending that money without guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to kind of, I guess, double click on that is because I'll hear people, I, I try and, you know, get people to, to think about what do they value and the most. So for example, some people might say they really value going on trips, traveling. So many people say that, right? They say, I love travel. That's what I want to spend my money on. So if that's what you value and that's what you want to spend on, if at the end of the year you look back and you go, gosh, I spent quite a lot on this or I spent a lot on that trip or those flights, then you can, as you said, enjoy, not feel any guilt, not feel any yeah. stress because you think that is what 
I value the most, it's my highest value, it's at the top of my list, so therefore I'm going to enjoy that. Another friend of mine who loves fashion, she works in fashion, she loves, you know, spending money and buying things, buying luxury items, buying things that other people might go, gosh, how much for, for a jacket mm-hmm. or how much for... But for her, somebody who really values, you know, specific pieces and specific designers, she her wardrobe is like, oh my gosh, it's like an Aladdin's cave, but that's what she, <laughs> that's what she values. So there's yes. no... Yeah, guilt or shame associated with with you've wasted your money if you've spent it on something that you've enjoyed. So how exactly. can people maybe think about yeah which things they value? Because some people might say, well, I value all that stuff. You know, I want to have a nice <laughs> trip. I want to buy a nice bag. Like, how can you choose to uh, yeah what you value and then try to eradicate some of that guilt and shame around spending money that you've worked hard for on things that you enjoy? Mm, I love this because I think, and this is really where we start to come into our own as, you know, free thinking, independent uh, individuals where, you know, you might be in a group of friends and you all value th- different things, but it's important that we remember to be respectful of one another's aspirations, value systems and uh, desires. Mm. So if you start to find yourself feeling like, oh my God, I've got to shrink or minimize the things that I value because the people around me are going to judge me, then, you know, then you, you need to start thinking differently about you know, who do I surround myself with? You know, our tribes really matter. And I don't, you know, sometimes this, you know, this conversation can be trivialized and it's like, oh, tribe, you know, this word is overused. But just being mindful of who you are surrounded by and how they they fill you up. Similarly, when you're thinking about the things that you're investing your money in, um, you know, when you're thinking about these wants and that, you know, the things that really light you up, really bring you joy, are they influenced by, and of course, we're all influenced by a number of different stimuli, right? So I'm not, naive enough to suggest you know every decision that I make I make in a vacuum without the influence of my friends or family or maybe checking in with people for an opinion but ultimately when I make that final decision I know that that final decision is driven purely by what I think is the best possible outcome for me and my daughters Mm -hmm. so you know I think it's important that when we when we are making some of these decisions we will know intrinsic intrinsically when I do when I do this particular activity or make this particular purchase I feel really good and that feel good feeling lasts for longer than 30 seconds. And, you know, we talk about gratification as well in the book. You know, I think understanding the difference between immediate and deferred gratification also comes into this. And as adults, sometimes, you know, those lines can become quite blurred. Certainly as children, those lines are blurred because immediate gratification will always take precedence over deferred for lots of children. And so it's important to think, you know, you might it might be. So for me, for example, I love Lagerie macarons. So expensive, like these teeny tiny, like, you know, sugar bursts. I love them so much. I know that they're expensive. But to me, if I buy half a dozen macarons, pistachio and vanilla, if anyone cares, if I buy half a dozen of those, I'm going to feel so good. And I know that the second that I finished eating them, of course, the sugar high goes and then, but I will be so pleased that it's the entire experience. It's going into the little boutique cafes. It's the packaging. It's the unwrapping experience. It's eating them. Every bite of those macarons will fill me with joy and I'll be filled with joy for the rest of the day right and I think everybody will have their ladure everybody Mm. has their you know however big or small it is everybody has their thing and you just kind of need to you we have to learn to listen to ourselves better I think that's the thing that sometimes particularly in a digital age I mean I don't want to point the finger at social media but I think sometimes that that can mean that our listening ability can be a bit warped because we're not sure whether what the voice that we're hearing is our voice or the voices of a number of influencers who are doing things that we think looks good, but then when we maybe pursue the same thing, we're like, oh, actually it doesn't feel as good. 
or I thought this would feel better. And the reason we thought it would feel better is because we're not listening to ourselves anymore. So we yeah. really just need to start to, you know, we can, you can make a list or you can go back. If you're somebody that's into journaling, you can go back through your journal and identify those experiences or those times when you really felt happy, when you were really on a high. And some of those things might be completely free. It might just be you were walking in nature. You were out walking your dog. You went to visit friends, you know, whatever it is. Or it could be that you bought the Chanel handbag. So creating the space to do those things, do more of those things within reason, I think is really important. Yes, me too. And I'm someone who I love to talk about the future. I'm a big future thinker. I love to encourage people to really visualize and imagine different things, whether it's within their career, within their life, just within their future. And it might be a place that you want to visit. It might be something that you want to do. And, and I, yeah, I'm a big believer in actually set these big audacious goals and figure out, okay, how much, what would it take? Is what I always say, I'm like, okay, that's a big goal. What would it take? And that yes. could be breaking it down into hours, skills, time, and money. How much will it cost? And if you want it as you said and you love it and it brings you joy and you savor it then go for it work hard for it enjoy every minute of it book the trip do the thing but yeah don't feel as though don't feel any guilt or shame about spending that money if you are spending the money i think it's a bit different if you are uh, potentially putting it on a credit card doing a buy now pay later so that yes. is essentially maybe the last thing i want to touch on before um we move on is is debt because I think we are of course seeing so many things now that say buy now pay later even when I tried mm. to buy something online the other day I was you know about to put my card details in and I noticed the price it was only charging me for half because it was saying buy half pay half of it and Gosh. pay the and I was like no no I just want to buy and purchase the product that's it and mm. so I think it can be a little bit dangerous to kind of say okay go for it enjoy it spend the cash live your life live your best life if you are doing that on credit Yes, completely agree. And I think some of these catchy slogans, it's like YOLO, isn't it? Or, um, you know, as you say, live your best life, this idea of living our best lives. I'm sure it's leading so many people into really sticky situations because this idea that, again, coming back to gratification, that everything that we want, we should expect to have it straight away, that we, you know, and again, I don't want to in any way, uh, undermine people who are working incredibly hard and do want to spend their money on nice things. I have no issue with that at all, but I do think that we've lost, um, there's a, an essence of the conversation that has been lost around uh, cutting your cloth according to your size and actually, you know, not spending beyond what you can actually afford. So for some of us, it might mean I do want to purchase that item. I'm not in a position to purchase it right now, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to save until I'm in a position to buy it. And actually, psychologically, there's a lot of data. There are a number of studies that show when you do eventually acquire that product, having waited for it, the feeling is way more gratifying than it would be if you put it on debt. And by the point at which you're still paying off the debt, you might have abandoned the product long before, but you're still having to pay it off. And I think that that's quite a sobering thought to think, you know, in terms of our relationship with debt and the immediacy with which we want to acquire things, you know, we talk, we've talked about, um, or I certainly talk all the time about, you know, fast fashion versus more sustainable fashion. I think sometimes, you know, again, you know, I'm very careful to not have people feel that they are being judged because of course, for some people, if you're earning a certain amount of money, there are certain things that you can afford and certain things that you can't afford. But I do think it's about being very mindful with our consumption and with our purchases and certainly not going beyond what we are actually able to manage. I think particularly for young women, again, I talk about it in Cash is Queen. It's important to think, OK, well, 
if I do want to have something, I need to know that this is what is required to get to get it and that debt shouldn't be my first resort it should be my last resort under these conditions so mm. we need to be very careful about the debt situations that we enter into and know that actually it could have longer term consequences than we might currently think yeah yeah i actually well going back i saw someone online the other day saying that when it comes to budgeting for things or saving for things she said i always wait 30 days she said i wait mm. 30 days because if i still want that product in 30 days and if it's still in stock or if it's not gone on sale then she was like then i will get it <laughs> but she said often i get I to the that. 30 days and then i'm like actually i don't want it I, i've I moved don't on even now care. Yeah. yeah and you think actually how many times would we save ourselves so much cash if we could maybe apply that 30 day rule and if you still do want it after 30 days then great of course you know yes. something that you that you really want so lastly before we move on to talk about the power hour i would love to talk about the younger generation so i started out by saying as someone who's in their mid-30s and who's you know lots of my friends are a similar age to me but there is a very important conversation to be had around younger generations people who are potentially in school or maybe going into higher education and of course your book cash is queen i think really speaks to it speaks to that generation as well so why is it important for younger people if you know we're not learning this in school still i don't know why mm. or when or if that will ever change but you know i hope that there will be a day where people are going into school to learn about vat tax returns mortgages stamp duty you know i want people to learn and know what this stuff is but yeah why have you written this book specifically thinking of, of younger generations yeah no i think um and it's very timely i think because you know with the recent news of uh, rishi sunak in the uk announcing plans to mandate math lessons until 18. So currently we, you know, in the UK, we are required to study maths up until 16. He wants to extend that by two years. And for me, you know, I approach that with very cautious optimism on the basis that, you know, I think it's good news. You know, numeracy should be viewed in the same way as our literacy. It shouldn't be something that we can opt out of because we are surrounded by numbers in our day-to-day -day lives with everything that we do. Um, but, you know, the reason it's cautious optimism it, rather than unbridled optimism is that it's important that in those two years, we are learning and focusing very heavily on financial literacy. The reason for that, you know, there was a, so many uh, studies, so much data, and I love a good study, um, but Cambridge University did a study that showed that we form our earliest money habits by the age of seven. Um, and I just think, you know, as somebody that's got two daughters, one is eight, one is five, and I'm like, you know, my eight-year-old already knows some things about money based on what she's seen me and her dad doing, maybe her grandparents and other people that are around her. So she's already started to build her and form her own relationship with money. Now, of course, that that doesn't mean she can't, you know, if she's picked up any bad habits that they can't be reversed. It doesn't mean, you know, necessarily that what they le have learned about money by the age of seven is automatically a bad thing, but they are starting to learn by osmosis about money already by the age of seven. I think for anybody that has any vested interest in children, works with children, is a parent, godparent, aunt, uncle, that's quite a, a shocking thought that, mm. you know, you know, some of the foundations of how they will approach money as young people, as young adults, the foundations have already been set early in their childhood without us even being aware of it. And so there's a real opportunity to, for us to think about what are some of the lessons we can proactively teach these young people about money. Now, I don't know about you, Adrienne, but money wasn't something that was ever proactively discussed with me in my household. You know, I went off to university and then left the first time that I really had to manage my own finances. I was 22 or 23. And in my mind, that's just far too late because you're so already susceptible to 
all of the banks flinging out student overdrafts, flinging out student credit cards, and then you get the graduate accounts and the graduate credit cards, and you have no idea about any of it. So, you know, if you're not somebody that was already a bit suspicious of everything like I was, you know, you're going to take all of these things and think, oh, free money, that's just going to help me to extend my partying at the weekend, for example, you know, and that's just one example. You know, you might be somebody that doesn't really think about retirement planning. You know, if you're 21 or 22, why are you going to be thinking about saving into a pension? So if they offer you a pension in your first job, you might say, "Mm, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather have that cash in my account. Mm. And then you just never remember to reinstate that pension. Meanwhile, you're leaving money on the table because by virtue of you opting out of the pension scheme, the contributions your company would have been making on your behalf, maybe they're now just paying it out to you in cash, but then you've lost the contributions from the government that are being matched by your employer. So again, that the long-term consequences of that are potentially quite significant, particularly now given what we know about the gender pensions gap and the impact of that on women as we're you know retiring with a much smaller pension pot. So there are so many different things. If you think about, you know, all of these different forces coming together to create a perfect storm of chaos, particularly for women, but you know, it applies to all young people. If we do not understand how to manage our money at an early age, what it does is store up potential problems for us in future. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a study that showed that, you know, children that are, you know, there's a study around the, the pocket money pay gap, which is wild to me. So there is a, a pay gap that springs up early. Um, you know, in that the money, the pocket money paid to boys and girls, there was a gap of about 20%. Wow. Um, and this was based on a study that was done of 2000 UK parents of school aged children, I think aged between four and 11. And there is a pocket money pay gap of 20%. So already you start to see how some of these things become perpetuated from childhood into adulthood. But yet it's so important that, you know, pocket money is a great device to start educating our children about money. And those children that are paid pocket money, however big or small, have a 25% higher financial literacy rate than those children that don't receive pocket money. So that's something, again, that anybody listening, you know, it's something that you can start to think about. It doesn't mean that you need to push yourself into a position again of, oh gosh, I'm already struggling financially and now I've got to add this to the list. But there are other ways that we can engage our children around money, have conversations with them about, you know, how money is spent in the home maybe you know you help them to create their own mini budget around you know when we go to the supermarket these are some of the things that we want to get let's see how we can really stretch the grocery uh, budget that we have for example and you can help us to do that but just have an open conversation with your children about money and maybe just get a download from them as to what they already know you know children are so funny and much cleverer, I think, than we ever give them credit for. Sometimes, mm. you know, if you were to ask your children about what they know about sex and they give you a cheeky little smile and they, you know, they're a bit shy, but they know so many things already. So I think <laughs> we should just open the conversation. Yes, amen. And as a parent, I am taking note because it's something that I think about a lot. And I have conversations with my son, with my stepchildren about, but I definitely am proactively going to be doing more in the next uh, 12 months. My son's 11 now. And I just have, yeah, I'm sure as many parents, we all have fears and concerns, but I really want to step it up in that in that area. So thank you, Davinia. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, 
as always, at the end of every episode of The Power Hour, I love to ask my guests about The Power Hour, about the first hour of their day, what it typically looks like, what they do. And there's no right or wrong here. There's no kind of perfect power hour or morning routine. (laughs) Or, you know, sometimes people will say to me, oh, no, I didn't want to confess to you that I wake up late and I don't know, uh, don't (laughs) don't go out for a run. I'm like, it's fine. Tell us what you do. But I would love to, to know what does the first hour of your day look like and what do you typically include in that first hour? Mm. And can I just say, so I've got big confession. I mean, my power hour has got, I'm so happy that you're asking me now because my power hour actually looks really good. If you'd have asked me this <laughs> maybe three years ago, oh my God, my power hour would have been roll over, look at my phone, respond to emails, panic, and then hurriedly get the girls together for school run. My power hour now looks like getting up, doing a yoga stretch, I have to roll out of my mat straight away. And that's a thing that I have to say has shifted since I turned 40, I'm now 41. If I miss a month of doing my yoga stretch in the morning, when I get back on the mat, I'm so stiff. I'm practically crying. (laughs) So I was always someone that was quite flexible and I took it for granted. I can't take it for granted anymore. So I do a 15 minute yoga stretch. I then make a green smoothie. I blitz it all up really quickly. I started following this woman about six months ago who, so I was always making my green smoothie. It was a thing that I adopted during lockdown and I loved the, you know, I started to see the benefits straight away. This woman that I follow, she packages up all the bits, like the spinach and the blueberries and the banana, puts them in the freezer in individual bags. And then in the morning, she just dumps it all in the blender and adds the milk. I'm like, that's brilliant. So I've started doing that. It saves me so much time in the morning. So I do that. Um, And then I start getting the girls together. Really what I would like to be able to say is that I like journal and meditate, but I don't do that. I can't sit still long enough to meditate, but I'm going to try. But definitely those two (laughs) things happen. Well, that's no, that sounds great. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. I think the discipline, the repetition, and also the fact that you're starting with you, you know, as a mother of two young girls, doing that for yourself first thing in the morning and saying, this is what I want to do to start my day feeling good, to move my body, to have that moment, to make something nutritious. Because I'm sure after that, you're giving lots of time and energy and attention to others in your life. (laughs) So it's really, really great to hear that. And sometimes as well, people will say to me, oh, well, you know, loads of people who have this great power hour, they don't have kids and once you have kids you know so I think it's really wonderful for and encouraging for women for mothers to say you know what take a little bit of time if it's not on a whole hour maybe it's 10 minutes but Mm -hmm. you deserve it and you know make it make it a priority it's really really important and encouraging yeah I agree well thank you so much for joining us I've loved this conversation I knew there was just going to be so much that we could get into I'm sure we could do another hour talking about this (laughs) and I hope that the listeners have taken note and have really enjoyed and learned a lot as well so thank you again for joining us thank you Adrienne and thank you to everybody listening have a great week everyone I'll be back next week with another episode see ya Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.